So if you guys have ever been into our offices, if you've ever been to my office, you would be uh, struck with, with two things, I imagine. Uh, you would be surprised at how many bison I have in my office. Uh, I really enjoy bison. I think they're the best animal on the planet. Uh, if you want to just hear, you know what, right now, we'll go into it. No, just kidding. I, I've, got a, I've got a nice little spiel if you want to hear it about bison. They're pretty fantastic. I think by my last count, I have something like 45 bison in my office, whether in figurine or in uh, kind of a card or something. If you ever get a thank you note from me, it's going to have a nice little bison on the front of it, drawn by my wife. Uh, and so uh, I really like them. The second thing I think you're going to be struck by is how much I like books. Uh, my office is very much full of them. I'm always getting new books and I'm always needing more bookshelves. And so if you have another uh, way of storing books for me, please let me know because I'm, I'm, I'm the, on the verge of needing another bookshelf. And so if you've just got another one you want to give to me, that also works. Um, but I, I really like books. And so I'm currently in the midst of kind of rereading the Lord of the Rings. If you, if you guys like Lord of the Rings, if you know Lord of the Rings, I think that's a pretty familiar uh, story. But if you're unfamiliar with it, there is... Uh, kind of a journey. These are, this is a journey story, and it's a story about one ring. And so this is one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. And if you were able to finish that, you are a bigger nerd than I am, okay? So that's a pretty big deal if you're able to finish that phrase, that quote from the book. But, but this is one ring, and it's, it's very important, and it's, it's just kind of a massive weight on them, and this ring needs to get destroyed, and it has to get destroyed back in kind of the flames that it was created in. And so the story of all three books is this uh, kind of following one guy to go destroy this ring. It's this journey. They're going all across Middle Earth to destroy the ring in the fires that it was created in. And so as they're deciding who's going to go with this guy, this guy's name is Frodo. Frodo is a hobbit. Uh, hopefully these words don't sound too crazy to you. Hopefully you're mildly familiar with the story. Frodo is a hobbit, which just means he's a little guy. And so uh, Frodo is going, he's the main guy. And so they're trying to figure out who's going to help Frodo. Who's going to go with him? Who's going to essentially follow Frodo to the gates of Mordor? Well, they've got to go for this. And so uh, he gets this kind of band of people. There's an elf and there's uh, some dwarves and there's some other men that go with him and there are his hobbit friends that go along with him. These are all really weird words. I get it. I'm sorry, guys. You, Matt doesn't talk a lot about like fun stuff like this. And so I'm going to I'm gonna nerd out on you guys for a little bit. So they go with him, but they all, uh, they all kind of have different reasons for going with Frodo, for following Frodo. So if you kind of read the story, the... The men who go with him, they're really concerned about reestablishing the name of men in Middle Earth. Family lines. They're, they're about reestablishing that. And there's this dwarf who goes with him who all the dwarf wants is he just wants to relive his glory days. And then you've got the hobbits, like Frodo's friends who want to go with him. And they're going purely out of loyalty to the main guy. And so you've got all these different reasons, and it is going to be a treacherous path that they're going to go through. It is a path that leads to probable doom. And so they're, they're counting up the cost of what it's going to take to follow this guy, and they're weighing it with their reasons. 
And they're just trying to figure out, is the cost of following him, is it great enough to surpass kind of what the ultimate outcome might be? And, and each of their reasons has to stand up to that test. And so you can pretty easily figure out where this is going. This is kind of similar to the situation in the question we have to ask ourselves. Are, are our reasons for following Christ, are they good enough? Are they, are they been tested? Do you have your reason for following Christ? And so over the next two weeks, we're going to kind of look at what it means to follow Christ. While Matt is away, Justin and I are just going to have some fun. So uh, just get ready. So we really, you, I'll be honest with you guys, really what happened is we're in the midst of 1 Corinthians 11, and just in case you didn't figure out what the next text is going to be, it gets into this really odd stuff about women's head coverings. And Matt said, I think I'll wait till I get back to preach on that one. So uh, I guess he didn't trust me and Justin to handle the text. So, so we're preaching on something different for the next two weeks. So we will be preaching on what it looks like to follow Jesus. And today we're going to look at kind of the words of Jesus and see from his own mouth what he called people to in following him. And then next week, Justin's going to kind of put some flesh on that in the book of Acts and kind of show us how we see the first church really acting out what it looks like to follow Christ. And so if you're looking at the text with me today in your Bible, you're going to say, oh my goodness, this chase isn't wrong. This really is a tremendous amount of text. And it is. And there are four real big points that we're going to pull out of it today. This text is all about kind of transitioning your heart. This text is all about how you as a believer are, are changed by following Jesus. And so he's going to kind of call us from having hearts of payback into having hearts of mercy. And he is going to call us from being people who live a lifestyle of comfort to being a people who live a lifestyle of sacrifice. And he's going to be call us to be a people who were vulnerable to now being a people who are equipped. And he's going to call us to be a people who focus on results into being a people who focus on victory. And so that's going to be where our text is going to lead us today. So we're going to look at how all of that plays out. But if you'll turn with me right to the very beginning, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 is going to be where we start our study today. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. That's going to be how we stop for this first time here. So in this, we're going to see that, that Jesus is going to be entering a new phase of his ministry. If you have read and studied the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51 is a real turning point for Jesus. Everything before that in Jesus' ministry is unbelievably fun and exciting. Jesus is performing miracles and healing people, and it is just fun to be a follower of Jesus. It is Jesus' miracle hour for the nine chapters before that. It is cool stuff. And then in chapter 9, verse 51, there's a turn. 
Not that he doesn't care about that stuff anymore, but that he has established a new phase of his ministry. And it's established by the phrase, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so to set one's face essentially kind of just means to resolve oneself. This is kind of a Hebrew understanding. I'm going to resolve myself to do this. We, we have a similar phrase. We, we would say, you set your eyes on the prize, something similar. And that's, so that's kind of what Jesus has done. He has set his face toward Jerusalem. And if you, if you know the, the gospel, you know what's coming in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is Jesus' kind of ultimate sacrifice and end, culminating in the crucifixion. And so when Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, he is setting his face toward ultimate sacrifice. He's saying, I'm going to be singularly focused on what's down the road for me in Jerusalem. And so we have a new shift in his ministry. And so it gets its first test. This new phase in Jesus' ministry gets its first test as they go into a Samaritan village. And so in the story, we get that they, they went into this village and they're turned away. They're rejected. The message is rejected. And, and why are they rejected? Well, they're rejected because Jesus' face is turned toward Jerusalem. Now, don't get in your mind that like Jerusalem is pointed this way and the crowd's out there and Jesus is over here preaching the gospel and they're like, What's wrong with this guy? We're all standing out here and he's preaching this way. That's not like, no, not, his literal face isn't, I'm preaching to Timo right now. His literal face isn't faced away from them. So they didn't, we're like, this guy's a jerk. Why is he not looking at me while he's talking to me? That's not what's happening. So they, they, they reject Jesus' message because it was too hard for them. Because Jesus' message became one of sacrifice. Jesus' message became one of, join me in setting your face toward Jerusalem. And the would-be followers in that village in Samaria said, I don't want to follow you because your face is turned toward Jerusalem. So Jesus presents his message and it comes back and they don't want any part of it. It's too difficult for them. And the disciples, they fail to respond appropriately in the midst of rejection. This is one of the funnier parts of Scripture. So they, they come out of the village and they've been rejected. And James and John say, hey, Jesus, hey, can we do that thing where we call down fire from heaven and burn this village up? And Jesus is just like, what? Like, no, for the thousandth time, we're not doing that anymore. Now, there's some precedent for this. It happens in 2 Kings 1. But like, you've got to imagine like these disciples who were kind of probably like teenage guys and Jesus, who's in his 30s, if you as, a, as an adult have been, spent much time with teenagers, that sounds like a very appropriate teenager thing. Hey, can we, can we set this village on fire? Can we call down fire from heaven, Jesus? And you can just feel Jesus just like roll his eyes. And he's just like, oh my gosh. Have I taught you nothing? Come on, guys. And no, because he says, you know, we're going to move our hearts from being hearts of payback and retribution to being hearts of mercy. No, James and John, we are not calling down fire from heaven to burn these people up. Calm down. We're just going to go to the next village and preach the gospel. Calm down. Guys, he has come to save those who reject him. 
In the face of rejection, what does Jesus do? He shows them mercy and he moves on to the next village. He shows them mercy and he moves on to the next village. Modeling for the disciples that he's calling those who follow him to have hearts not of payback and retribution, but to have hearts of mercy. See, in following Jesus, he seeks to change our hearts. But that's not the only thing he seeks to do. That's not the only thing he seeks to change. See, when we look at the next section, we're gonna get a glimpse of maybe what this interaction in Samaria would have looked like. We're gonna get a picture of maybe what Jesus' words would have been. What does it look like for Jesus to set his face toward Jerusalem? What does it look like for Jesus to preach this way? And everyone is about to encounter this kind of single-mindedness that Jesus had. It's the only thing he's thinking about this point, at this point. And he's going to call each person to move from comfort into sacrifice. So verse 57, we're going to read this next section together. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me, But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at each of these interactions and, and we're going to see how Jesus' single-mindedness, Jesus' set-his-face-toward-Jerusalem-ness comes across in his interactions with people. So let's look at the first interactions. The, the, the guy comes to Jesus and says he wants to follow him and Jesus essentially says, there is no home for you if you follow me. Now in those days, to follow a rabbi was very normal, very commonplace. And what they would do, there would be this rabbi who would go from village to village and he would be teaching and you would follow him. Just walk behind him and that's what you did. And you just agreed with what he said. And Jesus is essentially telling this first guy, I'm not just any old rabbi and I don't want just any old student. I don't want just yes men. I want people who are willing to come alongside me and sacrifice. I want people who are willing to join me in setting their face toward Jerusalem. We must be willing to, to commit to Christ at the cost of comfort. We must be willing to commit to Christ at the cost of our own personal comfort. And so Jesus then moves into the second interaction. He tells another guy, follow me. But the guy says, well, actually, Jesus, I need to go bury my father first. And Jesus' response to him sounds very harsh. But let's think about this for a second. We probably get the idea that his dad wasn't actually dead yet. Because what's this guy doing just out and about if his father has just died and he hasn't been buried yet? Probably what he is asking is, let me wait until my father has passed away and I can bury him and we can go throughout all of that and then I will come follow you. What he's essentially saying is, let me put off following you, Jesus. 
Let's just wait until my life is a little simpler. Let's just wait until I'm not in this really crazy season in my life. You've probably known people who are in the midst of crazy seasons in their life. Typically, those people never get out of the crazy seasons in their life. They just find more crazy to interject in there. And Jesus is saying, don't put me off. Don't put me off. When following Christ, our relationship with him becomes the defining priority against which everything is seen. Don't put me off. Make me the priority. So we move on to the third interaction. Again, Jesus' response in this one sounds harsh. The guy has just asked to go back to his family and tell them goodbye. And Jesus says, anyone who looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, looking back has not gone well in the Bible. We've got this image of Lot's wife in Genesis who, who looks back to see her city being destroyed. And what happens to her? She is turned into a pillar. She's kind of frozen in place. Not really what I want. Okay, let's move on. Maybe somebody else has done this well. So you get the Israelites as they're coming out of slavery in Egypt and, and they begin to look back and say, well, why'd you even bring us out of there? It was so much better for us in Egypt when we were slaves. And God and Moses are just like, whoa, I think you probably need to choose your words a little differently this time. As we tell our kids when they, they'll say, I want Cheetos. We don't ever have Cheetos, but I don't know why I picked that. I want Cheetos. I normally say, I think you need to try that again. I have a feeling that's what God and Moses did when they were like, oh man, it was so much better for us back in Egypt. I think they were like, hey, let's try that again. Let's figure out some different words to say here because that's definitely wrong. And so this guy just, it seems like it's, hey, I want to go say goodbye to my family, but it's the same thing from the point above. The defining aspect of your life needs to be your priority with Christ. And everything else is seen through that lens. Following Christ has no place for like a verse 61 kind of phrase. It has no place for the, I will follow you, Lord, but. There's no way to finish that phrase. So Jesus is saying to this guy, if you're going to finish that phrase, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, these words of Jesus are harsh, right? This, this is not the like sweet, comfortable, loving thing that we often hear in the midst of our gospel presentations. Because far too often we've tried to, to sweeten the pot when it comes to Jesus. We've tried to make it sound more palatable to follow Christ. When in reality, following Christ has a serious cost to it. We've tried to cheapen grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. We've wanted to make it easier to follow Christ. And Jesus is not telling these would-be followers that it's easy to follow him. No, in fact, he's saying, this is a difficult task. I'm moving you out of the comfort of your life into sacrifice. I'm calling you to set your eyes on Jerusalem with me. This is not easy. See, the key to evangelism is not how wide we can make the door, but where the door leads. Don't seek to make the door wider. Seek to, to enhance 
the destination. Make Jesus look more glorified. Don't widen the door to the kingdom. The door is wide enough already. The door is where Jesus said it. It is Christ that is to be glorified. Don't try to sweeten the pot in the midst of evangelism. Because as we learn from our Christ, he has called people out of comfort, not into complacency. He's called people out of comfort and into sacrifice. So not only does he change our hearts, but he changes our lifestyles to be one of sacrifice. Let's go on and look at the next section. We're going to be in, in chapter 10. I know, I know Chase is probably just like, oh my gosh, Jesse, come on. No, no, no. It's a long text. We're just going to walk through it. So on into chapter 10. So Jesus is, has done his first kind of evangelism in this set your eyes toward Jerusalem phase. And now he's going to send out a whole slew of people to go with him. And so in this section, he's going to send out the 72 and he's going to seek to send them before him. And their goal is to evangelize the places where he is going. This is his first work outside of his 12 disciples. And if you are looking for this section to be kind of a, a pump up pregame speech that are going to get you really fired up, if you're one of the 72, that's not it. It's not it. It actually begins to sound really daunting. So let me read it for us. Chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and every place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even, even the dust of your town that clings to the, my feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for this town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have, been, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for the judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Thus, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So in this section, this is not the pregame speech you think you're going to hear. We look at this, and, he, and these, these missionaries, these first missionaries being sent out by Christ, Jesus is going to explain that you're going out, and you are vulnerable. Verses 2 and 3 explain that well. You're going out, and the laborers are few. There are very few of you, and this is a massive job. But not just that. You're going out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, I've seen lambs, and I've seen wolves. I've never seen the two together. 
I don't think it ends super well, right? That's not really like, I think that's like what happens on like planet earth and we cover my kid's eyes when it gets to that part. Oh no, the lambing, it, they, they're just playing. That's, <laughs> that's not what's happening here. I don't think that ends well. And so the lamb and the wolf don't get along. And so he's saying, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is a huge and dangerous operation. And there are very few of you who are going to do it. And if that's not enough, I'm gonna make you even more vulnerable. In verse four, he takes away their money bag and he takes away their knapsack and he takes away their extra pair of sandals. Yes, even their extra pair of sandals. And you're like, come on, Jesus. So I could just bring it along. It's another pair of shoes. Come on, my feet are stinky. And so he's taking away all of these extra things from them, making them more and more vulnerable. And then he gives them a huge and urgent job. Their job is to heal the sick and declare the nearness of the kingdom. Now note here, they're not going out and preaching judgment. This isn't like Jonah. They're going out and they're preaching invitations to people. They're preaching invitations to come into this kingdom. The kingdom is near. Now we must tell the truth that God is angry about sin and that his judgment is near, but we should also take a note from this and make sure as we're proclaiming the gospel that we're noting that the kingdom of God is near. These are invitations into this relationship, invitations that leave one only accountable to God, which is why the disciples are able to model Christ as he did back in that Samaritan village and just go on to the next in the midst of rejection, they're able to model that. They're able to dust their feet off and move on to the next because they're not rejecting the disciples themselves, right? That's what verse 16 says. Verse 16 says, when they reject you, they're actually rejecting me. And when they reject me, they're rejecting the one who sent me. So as you are going out and evangelizing, do not get distracted and distressed by rejection as it comes your way. Jesus has prepared us for this. The first missionaries, he has prepared them for that. Don't get distressed by this. But know that even in the midst of the vulnerability that he's placed us in, he placed the 72 in as sheeps among wolves. He has equipped them for this ministry. As we said, he stripped away their, their knapsack and their money bag and their extra pair of sandals. But we also see in the text that he has provided for them and he will equip them with all the stuff that he's called them to give up, right? He's called them to go into the village and to find the person of peace and to find the house where they will bring them in and they will house them and they will feed them. And he's gonna provide for them all the stuff he's just called for them to give up. Because that's what God does for us. He takes those who are vulnerable and he equips us. He says, I don't want you to rely on the stuff you have. I'm going to give you everything you need. I'm gonna be the reason you have a house. I'm gonna be the reason you have food. I'm gonna be the reason you succeed. It's not the plan you came up with, it's me. And so as he's sending out the 72, he has equipped them. He's not just said, well, hey, you guys just go out and start evangelizing people. No, he gave them a plan and a task, 
Evangelism doesn't just happen willy-nilly. Evangelism is planned out. Matthew 10, 16 tells us to be as wise as serpent and as innocent as doves. When we are going out and we are seeking to evangelize, we have to have a plan. We have to be people who are equipped. And in this, Jesus shows his people that he seeks to call followers to being vulnerable into being equipped. He wants to prepare you. He wants to equip you. He wants to make them ready for the journey ahead. And so they go ahead. They go out. 72, go out, and then they return in verse 17. We get this depiction of what it looks like for them to come back out the, at the end of their missionary journey. So let me read for us, starting in 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the, earth, the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed to me, handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the 72 have gone out and have come back, and the mission of Christ has been a complete success. The mission that he sent them on, the mission that he equipped them for, has been a complete success. And they've come back and they've said, we, we were casting out demons in your name. And we have authority over spiritual matters. We have authority over the power of the enemy. And, and Jesus even tells them in verse 18 that their ministry of evangelism, their ministry of proclamation, their ministry of healing, it has sent shockwaves through the spiritual world. So much so that, that Jesus saw Satan fall. Their ministry is spelling defeat for the enemy. The ministry that they have done has been, has, has yielded positive results. And how are they doing this? It tells us in verse 17, they're doing this in the name of Jesus. They're not doing this in their own name. The tool that he gave them is his own name. And that tool works for the work of Christ. The name of Jesus is what they're using as their tool and it is working. And so if you have ever been a part of ministry that is working, if you've ever been a part of a ministry that is seeing results, you would recognize the joy that the 72 come back with, right? It is joyful and fun and exciting to be a part of fruitful ministry, of a results ministry. But Jesus says to them, don't just stop there. Don't just stop at results. I have something far greater prepared for you. I have ultimate victory waiting for you. And that's what he says. Don't just stop there. Nevertheless, 
I have written your names in the book of life. That's what you can rejoice in. Don't just stop at results. He seeks to take our hearts from ones who focus on the results and he moves us into focus on victory that we, are, we can find in Christ. This victory is eternal and only comes from knowing God, only comes from knowing the name of Jesus. And this victory is the eternal state. It's our eternal joy and resting place. It's knowing where I'm going. It's being assured of these things. This past week has been uh, kind of a little bit crazy for our family. My, my wife's grandmother has passed away. And, and that has been sad and, and weighty and we've shed tears. But we're able to mourn in a different way. We're able to rejoice in a different way because we know that she was sure of her faith. She has an assurance of things hoped for. She knows where she was, she knew where she was going. And the same on Tuesday, when we, when we have this funeral for her, we are gonna be rejoicing because this is a home going. We know she is with Christ. In the same way on Wednesday, when we have Linda's funeral, we know where she is. She had that same victory. She knew where she was going, right? This is what he calls us to. Don't just get stuck in results. Move into the rejoicing of the victory of Christ. That Your name is written in the book. Jesus calls his followers to so much more than they can ever dream and hope for. He seeks to change their hearts from being hearts that are focused on payback to being hearts that are focused on mercy. He, he seeks to change their lifestyles as ones who were focused on comfort to being lifestyles focused on sacrifice. He seeks to change you from being one who is vulnerable to now one who is equipped to go do the ministry of Christ. And he seeks to change you from focusing on the results to now focusing on the victory being found in Christ. So today you may be in here and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you would say, I'm not a believer. Let me tell you today, Christ calls us to repent of our sins and accept that Christ has set his face toward Jerusalem, accept that that is his end because he goes to Jerusalem and he dies on the cross and he's raised three days later. And so we now know we have that ultimate hope and victory. So today, I ask you to count up the cost, much the same way that Jesus calls those people in the Samaritan village, much the same way he calls those prospective followers to do. Count up the cost, and I can guarantee you it will be worth it. And maybe today you find yourself in here and you are a young believer in the faith. I, I, know that, I know that I'm saved, but I don't know what the next step is. Christ is calling you to not live in the comfort and complacency of your life. He's calling you to move into, with him, this phase of setting your eyes and setting your face toward Jerusalem. Are you moving your heart from comfort to sacrifice? Or maybe you would say, Jesse, I, I've been a believer for a long time. I'm a firm, mature follower of Christ. Then I would say, look at the story of the 72. Is Christ seeking to take you from being vulnerable and ill-equipped to being a person who is equipped, a person who is called out to do the ministry of Christ? And secondarily, if you've already done that, rejoice this morning, for your names are written in the book of life. You get to rejoice this morning. That's what you get to do today. 
So today, I, I want us to recognize that he has called us to a life of following him. This is not a cheap following. This is not an easy following. This is a call to potentially die. This is a call to die to ourself, to die to our comforts, to our, our own heart's desire, to our ways, and move to set our eyes toward Jerusalem. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we know that you have called us to lay down ourself, to pick up our cross daily. And follow you. So Father, I pray that each of us this morning would find whatever level that means for us. Are we just being called to initially follow you today? Are you calling us into a lifestyle of sacrifice? Are you moving us into being equipped people? Or are you just seeking to call us to rejoice in you today? Father, whatever we find, wherever we find ourselves, let our hearts be moved to take that step. It's in your name we pray. Amen.